Welcome back to another week. We had our uh, pretty exciting results for Seattle Film Critics Society, of which I'm a part, so uh, very happy to talk for a couple minutes about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm interested to, to hear a little bit more about the insight there. You're kind of uh, a little hush-hush about it the whole time. So the whole process is that we all voted, and uh, you know we'd have some discussion trying to get everyone to watch their picks as, you know, you expect happen in any award society because there's over a thousand films that are uh, applicable. So you want people to kind of scramble and get to some of your favorites. So, so um, I, I got a question. Is it as chaotic as our decisions for lists and awards and stuff where we basically threaten each other's families to get our favorites to the top? No, I think it's much more orderly. I think we designed ours for, for the purpose of chaos. Yeah, no, we, we entirely did that for... Uh, we we enjoy the chaos of it and uh, berating each other over liking films. That's our favorite thing to do. A lot more blackmailing yep. happening in ours. Um, a lot of threats to livelihood. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, a volatile process to be sure. <laughs> I think someone <laughs> some idea always gets left out in the cold. Right? It's hard when you're just doing it by discussion. Um, I think it's the most fun way to do it, but. Uh, I'm not sure it's the most democratic way. By the way, that uh, $50 for a boosted up aviator, that's coming in the mail for you real soon here. Thanks again. <laughs> yeah, of course. I just had someone send a message asking why aviator was so high on the list, so I, I, I'm going to use this $50 well. <laughs> Get yourself something nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so our final results were that we got Parasite all the way up to the top, and that's our uh, best picture for Seattle. Yeah, and I think uh, I, we're seeing that around a lot of other places. I saw Chicago also chose Parasite as their uh, film of the year, and I think we're going to see that across the board in general, maybe even all the way up to the Oscars. Uh, we'll see if it goes that far, but it's deserving, I think, of all that praise, and it might end up on our personal list as well. Uh, well, I know for sure it'll land high up, but... It'll, it'll be in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We, we haven't determined quite order, but it would be a real surprise if Parasite, of course, weren't in the end of year yeah. list anyway. Our, ours ours um, will be coming beginning of next year, of course, to make sure that everyone's all caught up. Yeah, you got to make sure everyone's seen Rocket Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did push for Rocket Man in costume design, at least, but uh, I think a Dolomite won out, which is fine. That's a, that's great costume design, and uh, the same costume designer from Black Panther, uh my big surprise was that um, Irishman got ten nominations and zero wins. It, it had the most nominations. I'm I'm a little flabbergasted by that too. Uh, <laughs> if you had to swap one out for Irishman, just one, like do you, do you know which one you'd give it to? I might I might have done like visual effects. Um, well, what did you give for visual effects? Oh jeez, uh, I don't even. Uh, let's see. It wasn't Avengers visual. or something, was it? Oh, I. I don't think so. It was Ad Astra, which is fair. Oh, yeah, uh, I yeah. just, I just think it's the one movie where I, I've actually believed in like the de aging thing. And I mean, Ad Astra sells me a version of space, but I've been sold on space a lot lately. Well, well you know what happened is that it was so convincing that everyone forgot there was digital enhancement <laughs> going on, so they just didn't even so. count it. <laughs> I mean, the fact that everyone focuses on his blue eyes is the problem of the of the transfer. It's kind of like, well, that's pretty impressive because any other movie would be eaten alive for doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, a, I I think the blue eyes is uh, fairly convincing. It's only distracting because you know De Niro doesn't have blue eyes from seeing him in so many movies. So right. so it just stands out to you way more than it would normally. Uh, if you, I bet if you'd never seen De Niro in a film before, it wouldn't even register on your radar. Oh, I don't think so. Um, I, I kind of like the cheesiness of like the. You know, De Niro in his 20s during the war. I, I think it looks kind of good in a cheesy way. <laughs> you, you've come around now on that one. It's gone so far off. And now <laughs> yeah. it's, it's only a scene, too. It's, it's a, I know. It's, it, it's a it's short so scene bad. at that. It's the one that stands out, but the more I look at it, the more I think that's kind of endearing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, uh, I want to say the rest of our picks, only two of them I didn't nominate, so I can't really, I don't have any grounds to complain about any of this. Which ones were those? Um, Jesus. <laughs> well, I chose the wrong person for Jojo Rabbit because the, the girl was 19, but I guess she was probably young enough while filming. I would have chosen her. Um, what was the other one here? Jeez. Uh, 
uh, I didn't put Lupita Nyong'o because my women's category was just so stacked. Uh, I mean, I guess I could kind of get into some of that now. Um, uh, for Best Actress, I had, like, Haldora Geirhar said... Why am I even trying to pronounce his name? The woman from Woman in War. And I had Juliette Binoche and uh, Cersei Ronan, Scarlett Johansson, Anna de Armas. Uh, uh, there was just so much more, and Us didn't really stand out as a great actress movie to me, but that's that's kind of the one I'm on the fence about. I can I can see that one deserving its win. Uh, you know, if we go back uh, twenty or so podcasts, we can hear me shitting all over us again in that uh, debative podcast we did. But Lupita Nyong'o was the one for sure great element of that film. Aside from like, uh, oh, you know, had great cinematography and score as well. I won't deny that. Yeah. But but she was certainly a standout performance wise in the balance of those two characters. So I think it's it's ultimately deserving and. It's nice to be reminded that us happened uh, earlier yeah, in this year. Right. <laughs> it seems like it must have been last year, but uh, there's there's some stuff in us, like you say. I think it's just the cinematography. Uh, Neon has won a, a Oscar before. I also don't know if she needs the the award. Uh, there are some others I'd I'd probably give it to, but you, you gotta remind me. What did she win for for again? I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> I gotta look everything up now. Yeah, it's a good yeah, thing we yeah, podcast yeah. in the 21st century when we have access to all this stuff. What would we do if, if yeah, it was a 12 Years a Slave? I just didn't want to get the wrong one. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, I haven't seen that movie, so that explains that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with how how it all came out. Anyway, uh, a few common ones, of course. Toy Story one, nothing was going to put that out. Um, mm. I think. Uh, Best for me is probably getting Daniel Lopatin in uh, Uncut Gems, who, one of Tricks Point Never is one of my favorite modern musical acts. Uh, I've seen him live a few times, and the way he transforms music on the fly, it makes it seem like the music is dangerous and alive and really sexy, and I think it's just, it feels the same way in Uncut Gems. It's very threatening and jagged, um, and I love that we got William Defoe. Uh, that was my big push, so... I, I am wondering if you're ever going to get his name right. Are you doing it on purpose now? Oh, of course. Okay, just, you know, I can't tell sometimes. <laughs> but yes, he, he definitely uh, deserved uh, recognition for that. I'm glad to see The Lighthouse get some representation. I'd hate that if both it and The Irishman had gotten shafted. Uh, but yeah. but Willem, I think, is definitely deserving. And he might, uh, or I won't say he might finally get his Oscar, because Lighthouse is probably not going to get any push at all for the Oscars. But damn it, if he doesn't deserve one by now. Yeah, and I think that's one of my favorite performances of the decade. So I'm really glad it landed on the list somewhere. Uh, we have the full listing on our website if you want to go look. I do have to, before we wrap up the film critic stuff here, I gotta bug you and ask what's up with the best villain category. In some way, I guess it's kind of like a personal stamp that we have on it, right? Like, a, I, I don't know. I, I'm glad that the red dress won it. I think it's funny that it won... Um, it's not even an actor, right? Well, like, that, we'd that's give the, an award yeah. to a dress. That's the thing that kind of reinforces the uh, the kind of silliness, the ridiculousness of this category, is that it's not even going to a person. It's a it's a thing. It's an inanimate object that's won this award. <laughs> My answer was that uh, Barry Jenkins had uh, retweeted our big one of ours before, and it became our most popular award, so that's why it's kept in. So it's, um, like, a, it's like a meme award now that you guys keep around for the clout. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that we have 19 pretty straight awards, and then we have one that we give to address, but that's fine by me. I guess, I mean, that might be the other thing, too, is that you need a nice round number, like 20, and you guys just couldn't <laughs> yeah. think of anything else, so you're like, uh, best villain, sure. Yeah, and then we awarded it to Infabric Stress, which uh, I, I wanted to choose consumerism for Infabric, but I feel like the dress represents that, so that's fine. I'd also like to point out that all the Marvel fanboys are still raging about Scorsese saying that it's not cinema, but nobody's mad that the red dress beat out Thanos for Villain of the Year, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's well-deserved, and it's a, a it was a better acting job than uh, Josh Brolin, so congrats to the dress. Maybe next year he can play a piece of fabric. Oh, man, the part where it goes into the washing machine and it really wrecks shit up, that's that's pretty villainous. <laughs> Next year, Josh Brolin is jeans. <laughs> jorts. I think, he'd be, I think he'd be good at playing jorts. 
We're back with Calvin and David. This week we're covering Richard Jewell, Bombshell, Uncut Gems, 1917. What do you want me to do? Draw you a picture? Spell it out, David? Alright, Pilgrims. Today we're talking about John Ford's classic, The Searchers, starring the Duke himself. And we got Jeffrey Hunter and Vera Miles in this western odyssey shot in Monument Valley. That'll be the day indeed. Right now we have these two movies that are kind of pairing up against each other. I think we should start with Richard Jewell. Alright, let's uh, hear about this. Uh, two bombs, starting with the, the one about a bomber. It's a bomber, right? I mean, bomb, bomb about it's, a bomber. It's about a guy who uh, is uh, kind of the guy that Clint Eastwood's attracted to lately. The hero of the moment who steps in during the Atlanta Olympics and... Um, it warns everyone of this bomb and, and clears people from it, and then is erroneously blamed by the media. Um, this really did happen. I mean, the media did demonize this guy and ruin his life. So, uh, But it is an anti-media movie in a time where uh, that is politically charged. Um, and it has its own lies. Uh, Olivia Wilde's character uh, is based on a late journalist who um, she portrays as sleeping with people for information. And this never happened. Ah, uh, that's even worse. I didn't know uh, when you sent to me that the person it's based on is is past. That's even worse. Yeah. That's even ter- that's terrible slander. Um, for my understanding, well, I, I, I think was- it would be libel if if she were alive, but she's dead, so nobody except the newspapers really going to defend her for it. Right. Uh, I think it's uh, if I if I understanding the perspectives here are a little getting uh mixed around a bit, and I think the defense of it was that. It was someone she was already with, but I don't know if you yeah. can if you can give it to me the context of the film. Do you think there's any justification to that? I think Olivia Wilde's been all over the map. I'm getting a little bit mad at her, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was unfeminist to worry about women's sex lives, and I'm like, yeah, but you're portraying a dead woman, and it, this is about a movie about people's reputations and what the media does to them. And here's this piece of media that uh, um, I don't think that's you know I don't think it's really shown in the movie that way it's never portrayed that they had a they had an ongoing relationship there's nothing i could take out of their scene in the bar with john ham and wild that that isn't just uh my takeaway that it's i i'm just shocked that <laughs> that a uh, movie that really wants to call out the media would do this to itself so um i i don't know it's also been clint eastwood's worst opening in 15 years i, I feel bad about that because there is a good movie under here. Uh, it's just a... I think it's a shame. I mean, I talked to you a bit about this before your review went up. You were nice enough to quote me in it. Um, but that it just... <laughs> it just seems that uh, Clint Eastwood is so solely focused on this... Uh, on pu- pushing forth the political rhetoric now in all his films. Uh, and especially as of late. Because it's not only this one. There's also the similar with uh, 15, 17 to Paris recently. And yeah. Sully before that. And they all have this political undercurrent. And this kind of praising of uh, small time heroics from individuals. And it just seems yeah. very, very uh, singular in what he's trying to push in his agenda. And he, also, he's obviously been a huge political proponent. Nobody's ever going to live down Clint Eastwood talking to an empty chair. <laughs> No, <laughs> and um, sometimes that's how this movie feels. Uh, I think uh, Paul Walter Hauser is in it, though, and he is really fantastic as Richard Jewell. Um, I wonder if part of the problem is that it's called Richard Jewell, because that, that means nothing to me until I saw the movie. I was just going to say, I despise movies that just have a character name as the title, yeah. because it just it means so little, unless it's something uh, a lot more... <laughs> Like, like, like you understand that? Like, I don't know, I guess, like, Hoffa can get away with it, because it makes sense, because it's such a big name, or, like, Malcolm X, or whatever. It makes sense. What, what would you want to call it otherwise? But titles are, are such a playground to have such a fun creativity with, and paint this portrait of what your movie's supposed to be. It's part of the advertising, and you're just so plain if you want to just say, it's a person name, you know? And he did look, yeah. look, he did the same thing with Sully as well. Yeah, and Sully and J. Edgar as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, the original title of the piece is called American Nightmare, which I think would be a dope movie name, honestly. So yeah, that that would put bad. some butts in seats, I bet. Yeah, 
I just want um, to say on the other end, you've got someone as crazy recognizable as like Howard Hughes that Scorsese did a pile pick of, and he still mm-hmm. didn't put that as the name of it. Right. <laughs> uh, I just think it's not good to title it. It's not a biography. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there are fictions in it. I think Eastwood tries to stay close to his truth. And if the whole campaign weren't about like a, let's expose uh, the truth of the media and let's remember America again, I might be able to get behind this as like an okay picture. Yeah, I'm just, uh, the the degradation of the respectability of, of news, or the recognition of it, at least, with all the, the fake news rhetoric being thrown out, is dangerous and scary still. Uh, and just seeing the reinforcement of that in films like this to try and spread that even worse. Like, film is already inherently propagandist because it's yeah, it it's just a giant informative cultural thing so yeah. p- people will flock to and just interpret film as the and whatever we watch as the norm and you know we got mm. the same problem with tv and stuff and that's kind of how media has spun out of control generally but it's it still needs to be a, a certain truthfulness maintained and that's why I, I really despise uh biopics in particular that uh mess around with the facts to a, to such a degree as this yeah sure um and i think it's just it's such an easy thing to avoid there's like that you know there's 20 seconds in the movie that would make this a seven out of ten if it weren't there right so i feel pretty bad that it that's just that little bit and that's olivia wilde who's always been an advocate for me too who's being dragged through the mud on this but uh i wish it were uh, clint eastwood answering the questions but of course uh he'll never go on a campaign circuit so uh, mm-hmm. He's kind of throwing her under the bus, too. Um, on the other side of it, we have a more fictionalized take also on the news media within the same week. Uh, bombshells out, and uh, it has a mixture of real and fake characters that uh, circulated around Roger Ailes in the in the Fox News kind of outing around Me Too. Was this one any better? Oh, I think it's much better. Oh, okay, that's uh, good. Char- <laughs> Charlie's Theron disappears completely under some prosthetics. You could not tell her apart from Megan Kelly. It's really remarkable. Um, then we have, of course, uh, we just have a great trio here of Theron, Kidman, and Robbie, who are, you know, great actresses, uh, some of the best we have. And uh, watching them work together is really fantastic. Uh, John Lithgow plays a really slimy Roger Ailes. So, I mean, that's fun and really bad. John John Lithgow playing slimy people like sign me up for that. That's that's what I love him, seeing him do. That's even better than his comedy stuff, honestly. Like you know, just go watch a bunch of De Palma films and you'll see him be a real sleaze, and it's great. But uh, likewise, <laughs> I I don't I'm not an expert on Fox News. I've never really watched it, right? <laughs> um, so I I realize that some of this is fictionalized and it's made for entertainment. But I think this is a bigger story, just about women in the workplace and in entertainment. And of course, they're wearing the short skirts. They 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 know basically what they're getting into. But then it's really twisted. Like uh, Margot Robbie's in the office with them, and he's like, you know, just raise your skirt up a little higher, and need to see his underwear. And he's always kind of just jerking off to these girls in the office, and it's it's really sad. But I. Uh, I think it's, this is a really fantastic picture, though. Um, uh, you know, Ron's really impressive. I do want to say I'll, I'll be willing to be a little bit more lenient with the the fact twisting here a bit for the sake of entertainment, because yeah. you, know, you know, like you said, uh, you know, it's uh, you know not always truthful, and you know, twisting things for the entertainment of the audience, which I feel like really captures the spirit of Fox News itself. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like if you're going to twist anything. Um, maybe twist the story because, uh, well, obviously I, as well, if it's presented as a, a fictionalized and yeah, exactly. you know more fantastical, you can get away with that a lot more. Whereas Eastwood's films are obviously driving. Uh, I think he also said very uh, Paul Greengrassy. You called them as well, kind of similar to the Bourne films, where you go for this really gritty, realistic seeming effect. This story isn't trying to tell us that it's going to bring us the real truth of America, right? So I am a little bit more flexible on this, but man, Theron, I mean, if you could just watch clips and hear her voice combined with the prosthetics, you're not going to have any idea. Um, I think people forget how transformative uh, Charlize Theron can be as an actress. I don't think anyone remembers her Oscar-winning role in Monster. And I also want to say, like, on the topic of, uh, yeah, I mean, 
on the topic of the name movies, I thought Tolly was a, the best performance of last year by a woman, and that was buried under such a horrible name. Tolly is a horrible name for a movie. Oh, we talked about this before. What was it? Uh, I think another Western, maybe we'll get around to eventually, I, I showed you, called Jubal. Is a, Jubal. Is a terrible <laughs> name for a movie, because not only does it tell you nothing, but it's not even a recognizable name. And Tolly, yeah, that means nothing. I mean, Tolly's to me means coffee. That's it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, lesson of the podcast here is don't name your films after character names. No. Be creative. Um, if you want to name... <laughs> If you want to name your film something, you should name it Uncut Gems. That's a fucking dope name. It is, actually. I mean, that's a that's a really, like, kind of this raw-feeling name. It seems very indicative of the film. Like, like you tell me that, and I get a sense of what kind of movie it is already. There was an interview with someone from, I think it was Variety, and she's like, uh, she was asking, I think Josh Zafty, uh, why do you name it uh, Uncut Gems? He's like, you know what it means when your gems are uncut? That means you're living dangerously and on the edge. And he goes on for a whole paragraph about being uncut and stuff. And the interviewer's just like, oh, I see. And I was just cracking <laughs> up. Because <laughs> she like really baited him into going all in on uh, philosophizing what this name really means. But it just sounds dope. And I think we all know that. I, th- I think we all like movies with really uh, sharp names. Uh, yeah. And, and ironically, I guess, Uncut Gems <laughs> is a very sharp name. Yeah. Um, so Adam Sandler is amazing i i mean i heard everything right and and you kind of wonder uh you kind of wonder if it's punch drunk love but man he really elevates anxiety in this movie i have a ever review that'll be up by the time this is up i i just think it's fantastic and going back to daniel lopatin that score is so edgy as well um uh, the whole thing is just a nervous breakdown <laughs> my wife tried to watch it with me twice and she couldn't handle any of this you know, I think it's uh, interesting that we've had two uh, transformative uh, comedy performer comebacks this year in terms of this and Dolomite is my name from Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so it's kind of interesting how both of those lined up because they were both like the hottest personalities of the, the late 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah, and and they made their, their string of shitty comedy films. They did that for a while and that came to be their d- definitive work. And now they're back here and they just like come, you know, swooping into the scene with these... Uh, towering performances (laughs) i heard uh i was listening to adam sandler on howard stern he said that uh if this if he doesn't get the oscar he's gonna make the worst movie he ever has on purpose (laughs) uh, we should all be very afraid if we don't award this guy he would really deserve it i mean there's a lot of deserving actors but uh are you saying he hasn't on the edge are you saying he hasn't been making those bad movies on purpose then (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I think he's going to go all in. I think he's going to go over overboard, or uh, what is it? Um, what, are, what are the worst Sandlers? There's pretty oh, much all of them, right? Yeah, I guess, but like notoriously, we're talking, I think, I think like bottom, bottom of the barrel is Jack and Jill, is Jack what we're kind of looking at. That gave us, that gave us the infamous Dunkachino stuff, so... I mean, there's some that are so bad that they're unnotable, like the Ridiculous Six on Netflix. There's some that are just like, okay, that's a horrible movie, but nobody's watched it, too. Yeah, um, and there's stuff like what, the, the Cobbler as well. He did the Cobbler on there. One of my favorite articles that I've written on the site, the one about the coma, was inspired by watching Fifty First States again. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I was like a... It, it became an article about memories in cinema and how I lost my memory for a while and how um, 51st Dates inspired me to remember what I love about movies. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 51st Dates, uh, it's funny because it's actually uh, a remake of a classic film that I can't remember off the top of my head now. It's very similar oh. anyway, in a kind of yeah. you've, you've got mail-ish kind of way as well. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember um, exactly. I should know, but... I'm afraid to say it, but funny people might be my favorite Sandler still. Um, I feel like it's a great commentary on... Uh, well, it's like a washed-up comedian who goes on and does really corporate, ugly work because uh, he feel he feels like he lost the soul of his comedy. And it's like a commentary on everything Sandler would go to do afterwards. I think if I had to... Let's see, I'm kind of caught between two because I've always had a soft spot for The Wedding Singer, though... Yeah. 
though though it has like aged less well with me over time as I've revisited it, and like the the super the, like the '90s comedy stuff with all the references back to the '80s gets super grating. But I think one that's really timeless is like Happy Gilmore, just still really holds up. Yeah, and I mean, I think we I think we talk a lot about his bad roles, but uh, Meyerowitz stories just a couple of years ago uh, from Noah Baumbach was fantastic. I, I think he's been great in Hotel Transylvania as the vampire. So. Yeah, that's the one thing as well. One of the the better animated series to, to come out of Sony. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not bad. No. Um, oh man, they're making another Hotel Transylvania. It looks like, but that's the. Tarkovsky, he did like the Samurai Jacks, and he really understands like the yeah. fluency of like Saturday morning cartoons. So I, well, because I love yeah, he series. did all those because he did that and like Dexter as well. I'm so angry that about the Popeye movie still. I know, <laughs> uh, and I wonder if that's why Hotel Transylvania three ended up being so on water and so you know so naval. You know what they did instead? They they scrapped Popeye and they made the emoji movie instead. That was their that was what they did instead. Oh, that hurts. Yeah, that, that really hurts. And uh, he's so good, and he has so much fluidity in Hotel Transylvania three that you wonder what we really missed there. Um, but Uncut Gems is a great movie. I hope everyone sees it. It comes out this week, I think. Mm-hmm. Last there, week, I believe it's starting on. Christmas. It is at least near me. Okay. My, my theater starting at, at Christmas. Weird thing is uh, Kevin Garnett of the Boston Celtics is a big player in this. I didn't. Yeah, think he I mean, he, he's in all the trailers and stuff, isn't he? Yeah, I thought it would just kind of be like he's like the incentive, and he kind of is for the plot to get moving. Like uh, he's the impetus for the plot, but uh, but he ends up coming around a lot, and a lot of it is um, on this Howard Ratner Sandler's character who's just chasing the biggest high. So he's constantly betting on Garnett's sports games. and um, Is that what you call basketball? Sports games? Yeah, I, I guess it is technically a sports game. And they have, a, they have like, Adina Mazel uh, from Frozen as a main character. So she's fun in it. It's, it's a good movie. I hope people see it. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be one of the better ones for the end of the year here. But I think you do have one more from the end of this year you really want to recommend as well. 1917 absolutely incredible movie um just blew me away in theater i hope i hope folks do see this in theater more than the rest of these films because uh, like uncut gems is gonna be netflix right i believe so is it i don't know if it is uh, maybe that's uk it might not be netflix in the u.s uh, uh it's an a, it's an a24 film so it might end up on like oh, amazon okay. or canopy or somewhere i don't know you'll you'll be able to stream it soon enough i'm sure uh I think the talk about 1917 is it's one of the best war movies of the decade, and I think that that just seems like such an obvious thing to give it at the end of the decade here. Um, I think there are other contenders, but this is a really strong one that uh, combines what feels like two continuous takes. So there's one that goes really long and sets up the whole uh, story and plot, and then there's another one where they have to like break into night, so... Uh, they need to be able to shift time period without a, you know, that's hard to continue. And what do you go inside and then it's dark out, you know? So it's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how long we'll keep doing this, like these one take films, uh, shtick, I guess I'll say, cause you got like yeah. Birdman really kind of blew minds with that. Uh, but you know, and it, it's not to say that this is like a gimmick thing for this film or anything, but I, I can very much see it becoming that if it's uh if things like this keep being super successful if if this inspires anything i think that's a gimmick but this time it's like let's see uh what roger deakins wants a one take to look like it's like holy shit <laughs> um you know that it's they have the best looking continuous shots and they're really fantastic to follow and um you feel like uh, andrew scott who's the the main character here he's going to really break out in hollywood uh He'll get some big roles. Um, it just feels like a, just like a fantastic meeting of mine seeing Sam Mendes go take like this uh, really different approach to war. I don't feel like they they're actively trying to kill. I don't feel like they're trying to kill people. Oh, I mean that's I think that's a product of World War One setting in particular as well because it was less 
uh, about killing him more about being killed uh, yeah. because of how that that brutality of trying to force the line uh, in the trenches and such. Uh, it's a, it's a much uh, less clean war than you know like World War Two uh, preceding it and such. And we don't get enough World War One films, but I think with the recent uh, centennial of Armistice Day. And stuff like uh, they should not grow old coming out, you know, recently mm-hmm. and getting lots of uh, press. Uh, we'll, we'll see an uptick in World War One films, which could use some more. There's there's only like a a good handful of classics, I think. Yeah, I think this is one of the best ones. Uh, I think as far as like the Great War goes, you you do get to like hang out within the trenches, and I love that you get to experience the locations they have. They have such a obvious like set pieces right like you'll go through like the poppy fields and and an abandoned building and then a plane's coming down and and they're trying to navigate around that and and the guy pops out and tries to shoot him then he has to you know bring the guy to on like a rescue mission but the whole like impetus of it is that he's uh paired with the guy's brother who is on the on the line and they have to deliver a note telling them to stop uh that the germans have baited them in and uh They've really tricked them, so um, you know. Today we just uh, send a text, but back then you had to run through the entire war field and uh, deliver this message. So it's it's kind of fun and different war movie that's never really been done before. Actually, thinking back, there is actually way more going on World War One wise because even Wonder Woman set itself during World War One. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a renewed interest in uh, World War One recently, and I'll be interested to see more of that i think but it sounds like uh 1917 is really phenomenal uh end of the year we're glad to see sam mendez bounce back from specter yeah i well i think we'll see deacons in the awards i think it's almost a given that he's going win the oscars there do you, do you think he uh deserved it in the competition for 2049 or was that kind of his gimme after so many years of not deserving it and then this is going to kind of be like oh but you you actually also deserve this one (laughs) (laughs) yeah for that reason he may not win it it would be a real shame if he didn't win for the better movie um that happens happens all the time yeah but i do think 2049 is a fantastic deserving movie um i'm a big fan of it i don't know if we'll ever cover it yeah, uh, I just I was just curious as the I don't even remember what the competition was that year, but Deacon oh, yeah. certainly uh, I think nobody would disagree that he is uh, our greatest working cinematographer right now, and certainly is going to be up there in our memories of you know the the echelons of the true greats and the innovators. Yeah, um, and I think it is deserved. Uh, I I'll watch anything that Deacons does. So that's 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 my big pull here, uh, and he did great. All right, well, you think it's time to talk about our our Western pick for the month, finally? Yeah, um, we've been going through some Westerns at least around once a month. Uh, Nothing too formal about our schedule, but uh, this is a big one. Yeah, uh, we're we're running through the classics pretty fast here, but this one was an inevitability uh, that we eventually had to get to it. Uh, Searchers is often praised as not only the best Western ever made, but possibly the best American film ever made. You see that discussion a lot, especially uh, from the more European side of things. Uh, And uh, I'll at least say that it has that American identity down, you know, perfectly. It's, as all Westerns, I think, tend to. Um, As we had in our uh, Scorsese intro, everyone should like Westerns. Um, (laughs) Everybody should like Westerns. It's That's a, why we cover them so much. Yeah, I mean, because it's really part of our bond that we would associate each other with Westerns and that we do uh, kind of dig through some of the classics. Um, it might seem like we're getting to a classic too early, but it, like you say, it's an inevitability. We have to do the searchers. Well, I'm, I'm glad at least we've, we've prefaced this by discussing a John Wayne film before now when we did Red River, because mm. I think that context is super crucial to appreciating the searchers and knowing who the john wayne persona is going into the film and seeing how the searchers kind of subverts that and twists it and uh you know kind of takes the idyllic and mythological west and uh 
gives a little bit more reality to it just a, just a little like it's not quite as revisionist as like when we get to unforgiven or the wild bunch or whatever where we go really all in and be like no these guys were real motherfuckers who've murdered and raped everybody these are my two favorite john wayne the actor movies where he shows up as a legitimate actor of note yeah, and, and that's the thing is that I think if you look at the Red River or the Searchers or even like the Quiet Man or other lots of Ford films in particular, uh, Ford really knew how to work with Wayne. But you'll see that he was an actual actor and not just a personality, and that that character of John Wayne uh, really is is something that's refined and can work wonders in the right context. Ford just knows how to get it out of him too. Um, well, he gave him his start. As well, um, yeah. You know, uh, Wayne really got kind of his first big break on a Raoul Walsh uh, western that bombed hard in the 1930s called The Big Trail. But mm. he he took off really when when Ford gave him a second chance in Stagecoach, and he blew up from there. He was this huge western personality from then on, and that's that's who he became at that point. I mean, they're a good pairing of minds that understand something about the mythology of American masculinity. Uh, they both have the same mind for that, I believe. Yeah, uh, I think there's definitely like like Wayne is often characterized as kind of a a, a dummy and yeah. certainly uh, a racist person, and uh, those aren't unfair accusations entirely. But I think uh, people write off his intelligence a little too quickly because he was very aware, especially with this role, the the kind of inherent darkness in the character and played into that specifically and. Uh, he actually even uh, he treasured this character so much that he named one of his sons Ethan after it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you want to know how much he valued this role, I think his son's name tells you a lot there. And yeah. I think that the fact that um, he has emotional intelligence, he might not have social consciousness, he might not uh, be like up on you know uh, racism or uh, uh, civil rights, but uh, he he definitely has an emotional intelligence in his acting. Well, he was very—he was very tied to being a figure of his time, and I can't help but think that the personality and celebrity informed a lot of that. And he had to be John Wayne uh, even up into the 1970s, and so that uh, that unfortunately came with those uh, negative aspects uh, as well. I because mean, he, like like we just talked about Eastwood. I mean, even to a lesser extent, he's tied to some pretty unfortunate stuff. That he could not break away from if he wanted to continue. Yeah, but like uh, Wayne Eastwood in, as well is this huge, definitive Western star, and this is what we think of when we think of a cowboy. And I think it's important to kind of dissect those as well and analyze what these figures that represent our culture uh, really mean for it, and the, the 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 figures themselves, and not the people behind them. I mean, and we're looking at a movie about civil war as well, and then when we look at the people in it, uh, we're looking at a different kind of civil problem, another civil rights problem. And for us, that's our history. Uh, of course, the Westerns were going back and looking at that, but now we're focused on something else. So our reading of The Searchers is through a modern lens, and I think that gives us a different interpretation than you might have had if you were in a theater in '56. Yeah, well, and I think that's the other thing as well, is that I find The Searchers is an enjoyable film, even without the context, is like just kind of straight-up adventure western, but it takes on this new layer of great meaning when you consider all of the historical aspects to it, because really, what a western is, is that it's a historical fiction film. The history of America, and the founding of the frontier, and uh, the necess necessary genocide of the American Indians in order to take that land uh, and make it into what we have today, that's all part of the Western that gets glossed over and mythologized, but it's important for us as an informed viewer to bring that context to the film and see how the film reflects and tells that same story. And Ford's Westerns, I think, in particular are interesting because they don't always outright demonize American Indians. In fact, they're very representative because of how often he was at filming in uh, Monument Valley and uh, hired the, the Navajo people to represent the Indians, even in the searchers here, uh, despite having um, a white man, a white German man playing Scar, the lead. Hmm. The lead uh, yeah, that's Indian. interesting as well. Uh, hey, when you're... Uh, 
this does have a lot of racism directed toward Indians, of course. Uh, I mean, every time John Wayne puts a little salt on when he says Comanche, of course, you feel yeah. something there. But it's intentional. It's an in- intentional commentary of a film. It's not endorsing a, a racism of the Americans. And again, the the vilifying of the Indians is not across the board. It's directed at a particular group, and though, although there is a problematic nature in that as well, they're being used as uh, the antagonists of the story, I would say, rather than villains, especially because Scar is meant as a mirror of... Um, Ethan Edwards' character, and so mm-hmm. the 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 quote unquote savagery he's depicted, you know, committing, is supposed to be directly reflective of Ethan Edwards' own savage ways to show that the white man is no better than the Indians who are fighting for their lives. In in comparison, there, it's a cycle in that sense. Yeah, um, and it does have a kind of cartoonishness about the Indians that I think is the racism in the movie, but. Uh, I, I know you have some stories about this. Yeah, I guess I could uh, tell a little bit. So I think that's uh, the interesting reading as well uh, that kind of comes up is that. So The Searchers, I find, gets largely dismissed because it's it's not like super PC. Like in a modern lens, yeah. we definitely, we definitely uh, take for granted some of the aspects here. I mean, there's a scene where uh, Jeffrey Hunter's character kicks an Indian woman down a hill. Uh, yeah. After and it's played for comedy, after this, uh, you know, this this misunderstanding and being married to her now, and it's supposed <laughs> to be this big joke, and that that might not play so well today. I mean, um, it's funny though. <laughs> yes, but but there is an uncomfortable uh, yeah. idea at the center of it. But anyway, like if you're gonna hate the film, that's one major scene you're gonna hook on, and uh, that's happened before. Actually, my. Uh, my fiance was exposed to this film before I was when she was in college. She went to super, super duper liberal hippie school college uh, in Evergreen in Olympia, oh, and no. <laughs> yeah, she was. I know show- where this is going already. So yeah, no, I haven't she- heard this story, but I'm I'm pretty worked up to hear what happened here. She was shown this in one of her uh, class, and I don't know which one it specifically was. She said it might be the Odyssey class that she took. <laughs> but I got a, I got a feeling that I, it was a different one, that it was more about uh, depictions of, of uh, Native, Native Americans or minorities or masculinity my, or something my, along those lines. My best guess is that the class is called, like, The Death of the Patriarchy and the American Male. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> it's It was probably something along those lines. But regardless, obviously, like, what happened was that the film was shown in the context of john wayne bad racist man and so that's what you walk away with if you watch the movie under that that pretense and uh even myself uh i struggled with that i think the first time i watched it uh shockingly despite the fact that the searchers is now one of my favorite films of all time i did not like it the first time i saw it you did not no i admired how how beautiful it looked because the cinematography is stunning beautiful paramount's vista vision is like the the best process we've ever seen for color um but uh, i felt disconnected from it because i i I was not able to get behind wayne's character i'm like he feels just like a racist in the film is endorsing that and i think you'll get that reading more if you take wayne as the star of the film more so than jeffrey hunter who is this integral part who is there to combat uh, Ethan Edwards' racist characters uh, characteristics. Yeah. He's there condemning him the whole time, and then he's the whole reason he's going on the trip is to prevent Wayne from acting out his his racist vengeance. I do think Jeffrey Hunter provides a great counterweight there, and he does so much acting against Wayne. They make such a they make such a great pairing as counters here. Um, I I just love the way that they complement and contrast each other. They do, they do a phenomenal job together, and I think in readings, Hunter often gets the short end of the stick because he's not like a, a big star to compare to Wayne like he had with Montgomery oh. Clift and Red River, but he really pulls it all there, you know, and he, he's, he does a, a lot of work for the film, and again, in uh, offsetting Wayne's uh, more brash characteristics, because the part of the, the commentary, I think, with the film as well is that it's hard not to like Wayne. He's still just this charismatic on-screen presence, and it's that that challenging aspect of him where you're where you're, the film is making you like this horrible racist character. Yeah, 
and that's supposed to be the the challenging aspect of the film that makes you consider that that duality of heroism i think is a the huge theme that's kind of a strung through the whole film i mean he has so many little lines or something like he's so endearing when he says things like right now we're too many and not enough and i'm like man this guy is just a american hero and then uh, then he does something real racist i don't i i really dislike the way he says comanche every time i i feel like that's weird that that's my main sticky point but i i feel like he's just like snarling into the word and and he has clear i feel like there's hatred behind it it's oh, they're supposed—they're supposed to be. He clearly has a, a righteous indignation of uh, you know and American Indians, and and even to the fact to, to to Jeffrey Hunter's character, who is like what they say like a a sixteenth uh, of of Indian, I believe they say. Yeah, he, yeah. He's like just barely, and Ethan saved him one day when he was a child, but he still like revolts him entirely throughout the majority of the <laughs> film. But it is—it's almost like you could also view the film as this kind of road trip kind of thing like i said it's kind of like an odyssey as well where they uh become endeared by each other the more the film goes on while still like butting heads the whole way there's a lot well, of comments spe- go ahead i think the special thing is we're covering this the week of star wars because i think this is the best formula for that kind of story that there ever was uh, i think this is the great like hero's journey and uh, i think this is like the whole formula for you know, like Han Solo is there in John Wayne already. Oh yeah, because Han Solo is effectively just uh, uh, you know a Western character in a space opera, and I think people uh, sometimes don't recognize that is that he is totally channeling the likes of of John Wayne and his characteristics there. So Tyler, you want to say that Han Solo is the greatest action star of all time? <laughs> well, I'm afraid that The Searchers is a better movie than Empire Strikes Back, and I'm sorry to deliver this big rant in the middle of our podcast, but I, I'm i fed up with it, and I gotta speak my mind. It is, it is one of those things, though, where, uh, and actually I'll, I'll say this as well, is that The Searchers was kind of the impetus for me making that huge western list that's still i think the most successful piece on our site at the moment <laughs> by like twenty thousand uh, or something sure. yeah it's it's a lot people like lists what can i say um but the reasoning why is because like i said i didn't like the searchers the first time i saw it because i didn't understand it because it was one of the first westerns i saw like i think mm. uh, for the big ones i saw like high noon before this one and such and so what i didn't get what i didn't understand was i didn't understand how it was subverting the expectations of a heroic and idyllic uh, John Wayne uh, in the film to make him this more brash and you know racist character. I didn't understand how it was taking these big themes of America um, encompassed in the entire uh, vast expanse of the West and distilling it down into this location here and see how the film was commenting on that. Uh, it wasn't until I went and saw more Western films, specifically like Ford Western films, like Stagecoach and such, that I really got a grasp on what the Western genre is supposed to be and what it represents, that I was able mm. to appreciate the searchers in full. And so that's why I made that list about I think, uh, walking, I've walking always, in a certain order. I really think of that list, especially those first three, Stagecoach, Rio Bravo, and Red River, are going to give you so much context uh, I mean, well, you could at least start there, and you're going to get something more out of this one. So, I, and I, I mean, picked, I just watched those three to watch this one. I picked those three in particular because they were all uh, different types of Western archetype roles, all starring John Wayne. Because mm-hmm. you've got an, an outlaw character, sheriff, and then a, a cow rancher there, the cowboy character. And so you get a full kind of breadth of the the kind of rules and uh, different types of Western films with the defining star of the Western genre there in three distinctly different roles. It's just a great article. I mean, I think it's our most popular for a reason beyond it being a list that there's something very tangible about having to understand something in the West to uh, really feel like what they're doing with the Monument Valley here. I mean, if it, if the list is for anything, it's a guide to watch this movie, I think. Yeah, that, that might be it. That's kind of what the the reasoning behind it was that led up to, like, it all kind of leads to The Searchers, which I do feel is the the peak of the Western genre, because not only is it this grand uh, story, you know, thematically dealing with uh, the throes of masculinity and America and all of its uh, racism and, you know, uh, its uh, foundational 
uh, foundation on massacre effectively there, mm. but it's also a stunning and beautiful and sweeping film. It's this epic that crosses the entire countryside there. They go from, you know, the, the deserts of Arizona to Texas to the Colorado mountains in it. It's And it's just absolutely pouring with beautiful imagery in every single... Like I said, I can't praise that VistaVision process enough. It's stunning and beautiful, and especially when you get to, like, seeing all the huge mesas in Monument Valley. This is the film that makes me want to go there. I'm... I'm like my trip for my honeymoon. I'm going to Monument Valley. I'm staying <laughs> That's there. That's so exciting. I'm going to sleep inside the hotel and look at the places where they shot these films because it's just so beautiful and so, I think, encompassing. Like, that's the thing is that it's such a unique location that is strictly American. And I think that's the thing about the movie, too. I think it is the best um, American story we ever have. Of course, I have a few movies I like more, but this one is the most purely American Western. And I might side with a, I might side with a couple Italian Westerns ahead of it, but uh, this one, I think, is our authentic american document to the west i think that's that's certainly i mean everyone has their personal preference for what they want out of the westerns but i think as far as for ones that encompass encompass what uh, a western represents as far as a, from a historical context and a thematic context and a picturesque context as well i think the searchers is just so difficult to beat uh you know i've well, well, I, we think talked it, it, I think it's unbeatable i mean i think as yeah. far as the american west goes this this is the movie um I mean, there's not a lot of really important American Westerns that follow, and I think it's because this says it all right here. I mean, the there, there are a couple, I would say. We talked about, like, 310 to Yuma, which came out, like, the year after, yeah. and then you've still got Ford that had at least, like, one or two other good films with him. He's got The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance to kind of put a cap on the Western on his own way in the 60s, but this is really, I think, the the peak. This is the peak of John Ford and John Wayne and, and their filmmaking prowess. Uh, and, you know, the other noteworthy thing is that it went uh, under-recognized at the time. You know, it yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, not- notable for any awards or anything like that. It didn't do super great. Um, it really became a classic over time of appreciation again with the kind of reevaluation, especially, you know, by, by the French in particular. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting because this movie would go on to shape the new wave in France. Um, Goddard especially would pull a lot from this movie. You look at like Breathless and it's his idea of the American cowboy transposed into the Frenchman. So uh, a lot of that is coming from Wayne and Ford. And uh, a lot of those techniques of the new wave are actually pulled from the Western. Because we don't really well, realize it, but those are the movies about people who are just living and people who are like inside of a life. Um, the way that we live with people in a French movie. I think we forget how influential the Western was to, to foreign markets in particular, uh, especially like we, we look at a lot of Kurosawa's films, their sweeping epic scope uh, is very much informed by these kind of films from from John Ford. He, of course, studied Westerns uh, religiously. And then you also have stuff like, uh, explicitly, David Lean studied the the desert photography in The Searchers to get an idea of how to film all of the great battle sequences and the, the sandy dunes of Lawrence of Arabia. I suppose that's why I don't mind when later on the Westerns begin borrowing from Kurosawa, because it's all rooted back to Westerns. And I wouldn't mind if... Um, say fistful of dollars was borrowing from an actual western so i don't mind that much as borrowing by something inspired by one yeah it was all it's a sick uh was it secular, secular? cyclical there you go C- cyc- cyclical like cyclical <laughs> cyclical cyclical, <Cynical>. cyclical. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a in a circle process is yeah. what it is, uh, and how they all inform each other, and that's really uh, like an, an encompassing idea of cinema itself: is that every film informs the ones that follow, and vice versa, uh, and so on I and mean, so on. It makes sense that the stuff we like would just be following in a in a large circle, and that it would all be self-informed by the last thing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's nice to see the films like this, like The Searchers, still stand as paramounts of the genre, as this these huge, defining works that, yeah. that still managed to capture the spirit of everything they did when they were originally made and the intent. And I think one of the, the other best things about it is that uh, Ford, like many great filmmakers, 
is all too modest and dismissive of his own work and basically denies in any of his films that he did anything other than plant the camera and just make sure all the scenes got filmed and he had no artistic intent whatsoever when he clearly he, he clearly has such a painterly eye for everything and he has this gorgeous cinematography there's a there's a great line uh i believe it's from one of the french critics that says that uh ford's films are like poetry effectively yeah yeah basically visual poetry I could see that he has a matter-of-factness and frankness about what he's going to do, but uh, I, I can't believe for a second that he doesn't care about the visual perspective he has, because uh, there are so many shots in this just where, you know, where you have, like, lines of horses lining up. I, I love all the stuff on horses within this movie. Uh, there's some there's... great moments in the water, in the snow, uh, passing by mm-hmm. Monument Valley. It's a it's really a great ode to, like, the horde, horse western and that was stuff. There's some there's some so stunning shots and not even just like Frank ones like the other thing as well is that he has such a great eye for for these like like I said painterly kind of shots like these very wide expansive with these you know uh, magnificent horizons in the shot I think of one in particular and it's like you've got it in like a little the lower third of the frame where the horizons at and you've got Hunt, uh, Jeffrey Hunter and John Wayne. Uh, on the horses and they're silhouetted along there and it reminds me of a similar shot in like Night of the Hunter or there's another more expressionistic one where they're uh, helping Jeffrey Hunter's character down uh, off a cliffside so he can go peer into the Indian encampment and I have these like all all of these pictures I can imagine perfectly and I use them as desktop backgrounds because they're (laughs) so stunning and beautiful and of course just the composition of everything else uh, uh, what about the scene where they're being attacked uh, where they're being surrounded by the uh, the Indian tribes, and you've got them, the ones up on the hillside, the lines of horses, and you got them in the foreground as well. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of in particular. They're just galloping uh-huh. in pace, and you could feel the tension of the lines, and in, in the context of the way it's framed against the Monument Valley rock fixtures, it, it just feels really cool, and it looks good. And there's no way he didn't think a lot about that. And as far as framing goes, I think the, the one thing we really need to highlight is the famous, iconic, magnificent final shot of the film, which uh, really sums things up uh, thematically as well. The film bookends itself by opening with a door and then closing as well, which of course was a thing then that Francis Ford Coppola took for the ending of The Godfather. It's a direct mm-hmm. homage. A lot of the 70s guys, even Scorsese, you know, he really loved The Searchers as well, and Spielberg. Um, but particularly is this this final shot it comes in we've got the magnificent uh theme for the film for the searchers as well as the max steiner score which i didn't highlight which also makes things feel very operatic to me but Mm -hmm. uh the final shot where we're bringing debbie home everyone's come in and it's just this shot fixated in the doorway frame there and everyone slowly comes in you know they enter the doorway except for ethan who stands there looking wistful he grabs his elbow as john wayne does in this homage to Harry Carey, who was a huge early silent film star, and uh, his, his wife Olive Carey is there playing Mrs. Jorgensen, uh, and it's this nice homage to her there, and then he, he turns around and does his John Wayne saunter off into the desert again. He is, he is barred from entering society at the end of the film, which is the interesting thematic thing, is that Wayne's character is not forgiven for his, his violent sins. Uh, he's no, he goes and on it, to live with it as the door closes on the story. Well, he's cast out to live, uh, even as Kanyon says about the Indians, is uh, to wander forever between the winds. He's a lost soul now because of who he is. And it's this interesting duality is that uh, we need these violent and uh, racist and hateful men to forge forth and take the... The, the land and create the the world that we will live in as a society but once they have done their task we we will not accept those kind of people into our world and so they're barred from the the, the land that they make the world that they craft uh, so they are they are necessary for the progression of the society but ultimately have have no place in it um it's interesting about the score because it's been kind of utilized and par- parodied so many times that uh, that it's influenced so many things that it sounds like everything, but it's so specific to this thing, um, and it comes specifically from 
you know, all these influences are coming from this thing. So you hear it a lot in all kinds of movies and uh, everything setting in the West. You, you kind of hear like, like the twangs and the, and the interesting notes that this has, but uh, then it, you know, it's hard to look at it in a vacuum now. I mean, it's a it's a magnificent score. It's one of my favorites because, like I said, it does feel operatic. Is what it does. It elevates the film to this uh, more theatrical level with that, and it makes it feel kind of akin to Italian westerns. I think in many ways, and it's done. It's composed by Max Steiner, who is one of the the great composers of the classic uh, Hollywood age. He also did stuff, you know, like major things like uh, Casablanca and uh, Sergeant York and such. I think, what Steiner, I think what Steiner does best is he, his score kind of opens up into the vastness of the space of the valley. I think it feels and fits best once we're in Monument Valley, and it feels good. And of course, it's not the way that a Leone would do it, but that is like an enhancement and an overindulgence on what was done here. Uh, well, and and it's, it's like a learned history of this. And it does so much as well. It's you know you've got the opening with the very beautiful nostalgic kind of sound that that kind of uh, warms your heart. But then you also have the more intense scores of the the violent you know raids of the Indian encampment and the attack as they're you know being chased away or whatnot. So it does everything really. The score does, and it is so prevalent throughout the film. Uh, there's there's so much I love about the film. I didn't even get to talk about. All the side characters that I love, the Jorgensen family, and especially, especially Mose Harper. I love yes. <laughs> Mose Harper in his rocking chair. Yeah, he. No, I totally but, agree. Uh, a lot of the side characters bring a lot of color and flavor to this. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just so glad to get to talk about it because it is one of my my favorite films because I feel like it does so much. It is this epic, encompassing film, but also intimate and stunningly gorgeous but filled with great characters and a you know terrific uh journeying story it it does everything i want from a movie um i think it yeah i think it does everything i need from a western and especially so influential and really um the culmination of everything ford was leading to so uh, i'm just glad we got to this one i mean it it was necessary to do it certainly and uh I'm sure it won't be the last time I talk about it. I could do at least another podcast on all the details stuff I love about the searchers and specific scene breakdowns. Maybe once we run out of westerns, we'll just talk about specific parts of the searchers, and that'll be our whole podcast from there. <laughs> yeah, the searchers podcast. I'm down for it. <laughs> all right, well, stay tuned for when we get that started up. But in the meantime, thanks for doing this one with me, Calvin. It's a, it's a blast to talk about westerns as always, but especially this one. Thanks so much, man.